You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters, including our Commodore class. That's Commodores Scurvy Pete, Kane, Kenway, Hefe, Zuman, Nopales, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Conif Allende, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And of course, our Quartermaster, Heather. Avast, me hearties. Heave to and hoist the topsails. Batten the hatches. Bring her around to leeward. There do be a ship killer on the horizon, and I know do mean to be caught under the weather. And that's all the pirate speech we'll be doing today. However, we do find ourselves with International Talk Like a Pirate Day on the horizon once again. I hope that this year all of you can get out there and order a mojito and explain in agonizing detail the sequence of events that saw that drink borrowed from the Native Americans and used on board Royal Navy ships to everyone at the bar. And if that's not your cup of tea, well, I do have a few pirate factoids today that very well might suit. Now, today's not going to be a Talk Like a Pirate episode. I did one of those a couple of years ago, and it was not exactly widely loved. I've rarely gotten any outright negative responses to the show. People will sometimes contact me with a correction or to debate my viewpoint on something. I got quite a few responses when talking about Cromwell, saying that I wasn't harsh enough on him or his policies. And all of that's fair. I actually kind of enjoy that stuff. But the Talk Like a Pirate episode, that one really upset a few people. First of all, the accent I did was bad. I was shooting for something, and I missed... But what upset even more people was when I used Liam Neeson, who is Irish, as my example for a Scottish accent. Now that was an honest mistake, I just really like the movie Rob Roy. But I suspect, after that episode, were we so inclined, and we are not so inclined, but if we were, we could say nasty things about the Scottish and no one would notice, because... Well, I doubt any of them continue to listen to the show after that misstep. Now, of course, we wouldn't do that. Scotland is lovely, the people are wonderful, and the accents are all beautiful. But all that is to say that I will not be doing a Talk Like a Pirate episode. We'll be continuing on with the story. But I have been sitting on something I really want to talk about for today's show specifically. It's about how the pirates on the Barbary Coast, pirates like Jack Ward managed to speak to one another. And as we move forward, we're going to see more and more diverse ships. Ships with Arab and Berber and Turkish and Greek and English and Dutch and Spanish and Venetian sailors, all of them working together. So how did they communicate on board? The answer is something called the lingua franca. Now, today the term lingua franca has come to mean a language that allows people who speak different languages to communicate with one another. English, for example, serves that purpose in much of the world today. It works best in former colonial holdings. For example, people from Hong Kong and Mumbai could likely speak to one another in English. English is by no means universal, though. People from Vietnam and Algeria could likely speak to one another in French. Much of East Asia uses Mandarin Chinese as a sort of lingua franca, However, English is the international language of air travel and, in many cases, business. But I'm not talking about a lingua franca. I'm talking about the lingua franca. Not French, as the name might imply. The lingua franca was a pidgin language that had its roots in the Crusades. For anyone who might not be aware, a pidgin language, which is spelled P-I-D-G-I-N, is a language that incorporates elements of different languages, usually when two peoples live in close proximity. And it evolves a new language, or perhaps a pidgin language is that period of evolution. For example, in many parts of the modern Caribbean, they speak a pidgin dialect. They are usually part Spanish, part English, part West African, and part Native American. 
The lingua franca was a pidgin language that originated in Jerusalem during the Crusades. Imagine a city filled with tens of thousands of people. Most of the locals spoke Arabic, but Greek was still the language of trade and commerce, which was a holdout from the Byzantine days. It was a bilingual city in its nature. And then, of course, there's Hebrew, which was spoken by a significant portion of the population, so it was a trilingual city at least. But then add in thousands of crusader knights of all different European nationalities. You've got German, Italian, Austrian, Swiss, Spanish, French, English, Hungarian, Georgian, Polish, um, the list goes on and on. But the Crusades were long, and almost everyone in Europe sent soldiers at some point. But then think about the many variations in those languages, and the different languages in what we consider modern nationalities. I said the Spanish as though they were a monolithic society, but would they have spoken Castilian or Valencian or Catalan or one of the other Spanish languages? Did the English among them speak Anglo-Saxon or Norman French? What dialect of that did they speak? What about the Italians? They could have spoken Venetian or Tuscan or Neapolitan or Sicilian or Romanesco, among many others. That's barely scratching the surface of the languages spoken by the Crusader Knights. Now, Many of the knights and nobles could speak Latin, and that was helpful. They could speak to one another in Latin when need be, but what about the common soldiers? Most of them didn't know a word of Latin, and fewer of even the crusader knights could speak Greek, which made trade difficult, much less Arabic or Hebrew. But as I said, the crusades went on a long time. Soldiers came and went, but holy orders developed, the knights of the temple or the knights of the hospital, and these were large groups of Europeans that had to live and work together. They had to communicate, and they weren't always from the same nationality. In fact, they usually weren't. And thus, a pidgin language began to develop. It started off as mostly Tuscan. Most Italians were able to speak at least a little Tuscan, even if it wasn't their native language. Tuscan is one of those major stepping stones between Roman Latin and modern Italian. We in the English-speaking world might look at Tuscan kind of like the Middle English of Geoffrey Chaucer. It's a different language, everything is spelled weird and has weird pronunciation, but if you found yourself involved in a tragic time machine accident, you could probably pick up the language if need be. And most of the German and Swiss and the Italian soldiers could speak a bit of it. But over the years, this language began to grow and evolve. From pure Tuscan, it picked up Greek and Armenian, mostly so they could trade. It picked up Turkish and Arabic. They were in Turkish and Arabic lands. It might begin to pick up hints of the home language of whoever spoke it as well. A little English here, a little German there, and sometimes some French on the side. Strangely, though, French seems to have had the smallest impact on the lingua franca. There was some influence from a language in southern France, but very little from French itself. So why did they call it the lingua franca then? In Latin, that just means the language of the Franks. During the medieval period and the Renaissance, Europeans were in the habit of calling all people of Middle Eastern or Muslim heritage Turks. It didn't matter if they were Turkish or Persian or Arabic or Berber or Egyptian or Levantine or Kurdish or Armenian or Hungarian or whether or not they were Sunni or Shia, they were monolithically the Turk. Capital T, capital T. Now, in Spain you were more likely to hear the word Moorish, but even that had less factual meaning than the word Turk. Now today this is seen as deeply disrespectful. To call someone an Arab is almost a cliché. But to be fair, at the time, most Europeans had no concept of the many ethnic and linguistic and religious distinctions between the different Islamic peoples. But there was a similar term used in the Islamic world to describe the Europeans. Now, I can't find a reliable source on exactly when or how it started, but I have a couple of ideas. I think it might have to do with the Battle of Tours. That was when an Islamic advance into Europe was stopped by a Frankish army in modern-day France and turned back. And then there is the rise of the Franks that followed Tours, including the rise of Charlemagne, the Frankish king and the first Holy Roman Emperor. 
Frankly, it could just be that for much of the Middle Ages, the Franks were the dominant power in Europe. Whatever the reason, though, in the Islamic world, from Cordoba in modern Spain to Cairo to Jerusalem, Europeans were called, monolithically, Franks. Regardless of their religion, regardless of their nationality, regardless of their ethnicity, you could be a Sephardi Jew living in the Caliphate of Cordoba, but for anybody of Arabic or Turkish descent, you looked like a Frank. So when the Crusaders developed a language that incorporated a dozen different languages or more, the locals called it the language of the Franks. Most commonly, it was called the Lisan al-Ifrang, although it would pick up a different name later on. When this phrase was translated into Latin later on, the scholars called it the lingua franca. Now, this was way back, this was in 1100 or earlier, but the lingua franca survived. It survived past the Crusades, and it even began to grow. It was the language spoken by the Knights of Rhodes, primarily, but it became sort of a trade language in the Mediterranean. Ships out of Venice had the capability to talk to ships out of Spain using the lingua franca. But it was used most prominently by European traders on the Barbary coast. In 1639, when an English Puritan was captured by pirates sailing out of Algiers, he would write later that, quote, From them we learned a smattering of the common language, which would be of some use to us when we should come to enter Algiers. End quote. Now, the Berbers and the Turks living on the Barbary coast no longer called the language the lingua franca. They called it Sabir. Sabir was originally the language of the Crusaders, but it had evolved to become the language of Barbary, and more specifically, the language of the Barbary pirates, the European Barbary pirates. Now, this was 500 years after the creation of the lingua franca. The language had lost most of the Arabic that it had started with, and much of the Greek, but it had replaced that with Berber and Dutch, mostly. So, while I do love a bit of our Carolinas under the weather, I will make the case that in 1600, if you were to talk like a pirate, you would be speaking Lisan Alifrang. Moliere, the playwright, even wrote a bit of it into one of his plays. A character called the Mufti came on stage singing a song, the song went in English, If you know Sabir, you will reply. If you do not know, be silent, be silent. I am the Mufti, who then are you? And this was the moment that all the sailors in the crowd would shout out in the common tongue, in the lingua franca, whatever their answer was. And this was when the women in the crowd, I assume, would be so impressed with the show of worldly manliness that they swooned and fell into the men's arms, or at least that was what Moliere hoped. But now it's time to move on. This little interlude about the lingua franca doesn't really have a whole lot of impact on the story at large, except to explain how people of so many different nationalities could speak to one another. However, happy talk like a pirate day. This is episode 86, Wicked Purposes. Last time we talked about the status of the Barbary states. Europeans considered them lawless dens of vice and piracy, anarchic mires where the laws of God and man were spat upon. And that's not really the case. They were havens for corsairs and pirates, but they were hardly the riotous, sinful places that Europeans made them out to be. They were still mostly populated by the indigenous Berber people, along with a large number of Turks, Egyptians, Armenians, Greeks, Slavs, and Sephardi Jews. Most of those people, though, were peaceful farmers and herders and fishermen and craftsmen and merchants. Most of the women tended their homes and the children learned what they could before they went to work. Algiers or Tunis wouldn't have looked that different in the grand scheme of things than most European coastal cities. There would have been Berber architecture, there would have been an idyllic southern Mediterranean setting, there would have been exotic fruits and vegetables and the smells of curry and anise and pepper. There would have been public baths more frequently, and a mosque would have dominated the skyline rather than a cathedral. But day-to-day -day life for the average person wasn't all that different for the lower and middle working classes. 
The primary difference here was a limited amount of self-determination and economic freedom. Take the England of James I as a counterpoint here. Before the English Civil War, the people had virtually no voice at all in England. Feudalism was on the wane, and there was a growing middle class, but if your father was a blacksmith, you were still legally obligated to be a blacksmith. Unless, of course, you joined the military. Hence, John Smith of Pocahontas fame, who we're going to meet later. But upward mobility in the England of the Stuarts was almost non-existent. The aristocratic ruling class was still legally allowed to punish or kill any of their subjects that violated their laws. They could, in some cases, control marriages and thus keep any economic alliances from forming between different families. And let's be honest here, the weather and the food weren't that great either. So which would you, a relatively cosmopolitan denizen of the modern world, prefer? Tunis and Tripoli and Algiers were themselves relatively cosmopolitan. There were people of all religions and races present. Food and culture and language were intermingling into, well, a melting pot. In London and York and the cities of England, you were unlikely to hear even slight variations on the dialect you grew up speaking, unless, for some reason, you left your home. And that was rare. If your local brewer made bad ale... Well, you wouldn't know because you'd never had better beer. Not a universal truth, of course, but this was true enough for most people who lived in small communities or fishing villages. Now, keep in mind here that if you were to choose the Barbary states, were you, say, an English Christian, you would be a religious minority in the Barbary states. You would have restrictions placed upon you. You wouldn't speak the language, first of all. There were hurdles to overcome, but it's still somewhat telling that so many people who actually managed to get away from their hometowns in the 17th century, who were mostly soldiers and privateers, well, so many of them saw the Barbary Coast as highly preferable. And they were led, at least the English among them, were led by John Ward. Now, John Ward wasn't the first European to make his way to the Barbary Coast, not by a long shot. The Barbarossas themselves were Armenian and Greek. John Ward wasn't the first Christian corsair on the Barbary Coast either. There were French Huguenot privateers that would spend a season or two working out of Algiers. They could earn enough to retire there. John Ward wasn't the first English privateer in Barbary. He wasn't even the first English pirate captain, a captain of a stolen European vessel, to operate out of Barbary. He was beaten to that honor by, at least, by a man named Richard Gifford. Gifford was a gentleman adventurer with a letter of mark from Queen Elizabeth. He found the North African coast to be a better place for hunting than the English Channel, and he developed alliances with the rulers of Algiers. But he operated illegally, in a time not of war and in waters that he should not have. So he was disowned by the crown and declared a pirate. But then he got into a bit of trouble in Algiers, so he fled the city and went to Tuscany, where he secured a meeting with the Duke. Now the Duke of Tuscany was active against the pirates of Barbary, and he saw that Gifford had an intimate knowledge of Algiers and of the harbor there and the people. So the Duke commissioned Gifford for a mission. Gifford was to enter the bay at Algiers and to burn the entire fleet. And in the spring of 1605, Gifford set sail from Tuscany, the plan appears to have been a simple one. Agents were chosen from among his crew that would enter Algiers disguised as regular merchants. They were to bribe the right people, secure the right blind eyes, and send a message out to Gifford. They got in, and at first all seemed to be going well. The agents, there were about a dozen of them, had purses of coin and contacts they were to meet. Gifford and his crew were offshore, out of sight, but word never reached them. They began to worry it was possible that their agents had been caught, or it was possible that they just couldn't get a message out to Gifford safely, or it could be as simple as it was taking longer than anticipated to secure the bribes. The problem was, if Gifford were to wait too long, all of his plans could be dashed. If his agents had in fact been captured, they might be in the midst of torture and spilling the beans right now, 
So Gifford was forced to act without proper knowledge of the situation, and that's never good. His ships made for the harbor mouth, at least nearby, and then boats filled with men and the implements for fire left the ships and rowed into the harbor. They got a few blazes started, and they were about to move on to more ships, when all of a sudden the alarm was sounded. Men on board dozens of different ships that were at anchor there in the harbor jumped up and opened fire on Gifford and his men. It was a trap. The agents had been captured and preparations were made to ambush his men there in the harbor. Several of them were killed in the fighting almost immediately, and Gifford only just managed to escape. Those twelve agents in Algiers, well, they were executed. But due to this failed raid, English people were in a bad favor in the city of Algiers. This was something that John Ward did not know. Now, the reason I'm focusing on John Ward is partly because of the wealth of information we have about him, but it's also because he was perhaps the most important European to travel to Barbary, at least at first, if only because his voyage started the tidal wave. Shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Things done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. But after his crew captured that French vessel in the English Channel, they sailed back to England to pick up more crew. They picked up fishermen and smugglers in Sand, and then reportedly they went back to Portsmouth. They recruited even more men from the Navy that had been press-ganged into service to their pirate vessel. However, that's disputed. But whatever the case, he had a full crew when he sailed out of the Channel and southward. Now, at this point, John Ward was not the captain. He was the instigator of the whole affair. He was the man who convinced these privateers to turn pirate and convinced them to steal two different ships. But he wasn't the owner of the ship, and he wasn't a superior officer. Now, in Elizabeth's privateer navy, the letters of Mark were made out to a specific person. Usually it was the owner of a ship, but if not, it was at least the captain. Sometimes the owners were rich investors back in England, but even so, the captain was the captain. But these new pirates were in a tricky situation. They were all former privateers, but they had all been on board Lion's Whelp, or another Royal Navy ship. There were different ranks among them, but there was no clear commander there. They had no royal letter of mark telling them who was a captain, and nobody owned the ship. They had stolen it. So they needed to name a captain, and decided the best way to do so was to hold a vote. This may be the oldest recorded account of a pirate ship electing their captain in all of world history. It may be the first time this ever happened. That's one of the most recognizable elements of pirates and piracy, and it may have begun right here. There are almost certainly exceptions, times when a ship lost their officers, or perhaps there was a mutiny and they decided to turn pirate and were forced to elect a captain. But not necessarily, and they weren't necessarily pirates, and there may not have been some instigating factor like death or mutiny to make that necessary. But right here, these pirates elected John Ward to lead them. First of all, he was older than most of the men. He was more experienced, and he had been a captain as a privateer. He was really the natural choice for leadership. Plus, he had plans. Europe was no longer welcoming to men of their trade, to privateers. They were never welcoming to pirates. 
But the war with Spain was on hold. King James had signed a peace, and the Netherlands had agreed to a 12-year truce that had effectively ended their war. So these men weren't needed in Europe any longer. They had nothing to turn to except for the lashes of the Royal Navy. But what were they to do? Once they had been free, sailing the high seas and earning their fortunes by capturing Spanish silver. They were men who didn't want to serve a king or the navy. But Ward knew of another place that they could call home. A place that valued men with their skill set. A place that would allow them to enjoy their lives the way they wished. And not only that, but it was warm and the waters were clear and the food is spiced and filled with exotic fruit. And that doesn't even begin to mention the women, mysterious, dark-eyed lovelies who hide behind veils due to a beauty so intoxicating it might just drive a man to madness. And there were a number of exciting and exotic intoxicants available there as well. The crew was intrigued, and they agreed, so they sailed south. Now, they captured a small bark near the coast of France. They narrowly avoided the Spanish Coast Guard, and they put in on the Atlantic coast of Morocco. They arrived at a city named Salet, or Salie. The English pronounced it much like the name Sally. Now, Salie would go on to be a major player in Barbary piracy. It's just a few miles down the road from the city of Fez in Morocco, and that was the hometown of Samuel Palash. It was Salie that Palash used as his home base and his port of call. Now, we don't know if John Ward or any of his crew even knew of Samuel Palash, but Salih did have a reputation for piracy that they likely did know. This visit was only a brief stop, just long enough for the men to gather supplies and spend a bit of loot. They bought guns and wine and women, but Ward stopped there primarily for information. He needed to know where would be the best place to set up shop on the Barbary Coast. The answer he got was always the same. Algiers. It was the home of Barbarossa, the home of Dragut and Murat Rais. It was the place for men of his profession. So after a few days, Ward set sail with his crew and sailed east through the Strait of Gibraltar toward Algiers. Now everything he heard in Salih led him to expect a warm reception. Algiers had been recommended as a place that would accept them, but when they arrived, Ward sent a party ashore, and they were immediately arrested. See, the Sultan of Algiers, the Pasha there, was still furious about Richard Gifford, another Englishman who claimed friendship and attempted to burn his fleet. The Pasha believed that Ward was merely another one of these, another agent of the Tuscan Duke. Now, Ward was a persuasive fellow. He was... Fifty-ish, bald, stout, white-haired, and unassuming. But he had the ability, the power, maybe, to talk others into doing the opposite of what they wanted to do. It served him well throughout his career. And this Pasha wanted to execute Ward and his entire crew on general principle. So Ward turned on the charm and employed every tool in his arsenal— there was gentle flattery. There was strained subservience with just a hint of strong will, the sort of thing any powerful man would appreciate. There was logic, and then he offered the most powerful argument, the truth. He was a pirate. He was an outlaw in England. He was not an agent of anyone, save potentially the Pasha himself. The Sultan heard his pleas and was unmoved. He ordered the executions. So Ward offered everything that he had. His ship was full of treasure and exotic goods. He was willing to offer all of his cargo to the Pasha, save what was needed to sail, and the guns, of course. That was a rich bribe. It was the sort that would give anyone pause, and the Sultan accepted. And I think about how these arguments must have gone. Did the Sultan send an agent to look over the goods from England and France? The Sultan was up in his palace. He wasn't there talking to Ward personally. Would that agent have seen that all of this cargo was marked with different stamps and bound for different locations? Ward may have showed that agent the logs from the ships he had stolen, to prove that they were in fact stolen, along with the manifests and all of his goods. I know, if I were in that situation at least, that's what I would have done. 
But if he did, can you imagine that sort of meeting? See, I really am a pirate. I stole these ships from good, honest Catholics. I conspired with my crew of navymen to jump ship and abandon England, I swear. We are scoundrels of the lowest order. We are absolutely not honorable men in good standing. I just... I love this scenario. A pirate begging a powerful man to believe he is in fact the low-down pirate he seems to be... It's the sort of thing that you won't get in the Golden Age. It's the sort of thing that we will only see here in Barbary. In the end, though, the Pasha agreed and let Ward and his men go. They elected to sail back to Sali. It was, at the least, a place that they knew they wouldn't be arrested again. This time they spent several months there. There may have been some raiding taking place off and on, but if so, no record of it has gotten back to us. But Ward did meet with a few other Englishmen who were in Morocco, ostensibly on legitimate business. Richard Parker, a merchant captain on an expedition to trade woolen wares for sugar and spices, found himself in dire straits in Morocco. Due to a tragic misunderstanding and a mutinous crew, Parker found himself without goods or money or most of his crew. The blessing, his vessel, was in poor repair, and he had neither the money to careen her nor the men to sail her. There were only about a dozen sailors left with him there in Sali. This was the situation he was in, when he was drinking in a tavern by the water, when he heard the familiar tones of English voices. It was Ward and his men, and they immediately struck up a conversation. According to Parker's testimony before the Admiralty when he was brought up on charges of piracy some years later, Ward did not disclose his status here as an outlaw or as a pirate. Ward told Parker that he was a privateer turned merchant and his men were attempting to do business with the Pashas on the Barbary coast. It was hard going, though, you understand. These Turks were touchy people. Ward told Parker all about his own hardships in Algiers, the truth of it, except for the piracy bit, and he suggested that they had the opportunity here to help each other out. Ward had a fine ship with plenty of guns and space. She was large and in fine repair, but he'd been forced to use his goods as a bribe in Algiers, and he was short of men. Parker, though, had goods and men, if they joined up, Parker could be his first mate, and they could trade their goods in Tunis. They could turn over a healthy profit, and Ward would see Parker and his men back in England in a few weeks' time. Now, personally, I think Parker was lying here. There is a scene in The Godfather Part Two when a young Vito Corleone, played by Robert De Niro, was asked by an associate to hide some guns for him. That associate offered to pay back the favor with a very fine rug, a gift from one of his friends, he said. The associate takes Vito Corleone to his friend's home, but nobody's there, so he has to break in to get the rug. No big deal. It turns out to be a palatial mansion, and then when a police officer comes to the door, the associate pulls out a pistol. And then, when the police officer leaves, they roll up the rug and walk away. Now... Vito Corleone may not have known 100% that his associate was a criminal, but the evidence became pretty clear. Would any judge have accepted this story? Would he have accepted that I just didn't know? So when Richard Parker goes down to the wharf and sees John Ward's ship, a fine 150-ton, 20-gun warship, with guns from at least three nations that had been parsed down for speed and filled with filthy scoundrels, shouldn't he have begun to suspect something fishy was up here? Now, even if he did, he didn't really have a lot of choice. He was stranded, at least according to his testimony. But one way or another, he agreed to join up. He scuttled his ship and he transferred all of the cargo and guns and tackle. Ward had two ships here. He had the French prize and then that bark he had taken just a few weeks earlier. Now most of the tackle from the Blessing, from Parker's ship, went on board the smaller bark, and Parker was actually given command of that vessel with all of his crew and a few of Ward's men. But if Richard Parker legitimately believed that he and his men were on a merchant vessel, he was in for a rude awakening. 
they headed out of Sali, northeast for the Pillars of Hercules and the Strait of Gibraltar, when Ward happened upon a Dutch flyboat. Now, a flyboat is a flat-bottomed trader that is best suited for coastal waters, but uh, can hold her own on the sea. She was unarmed and riding low in the water, which meant she was filled with cargo. Parker, according to his story, was shocked when the French ship, captained by John Ward, overtook the Dutch flyboat. He was even more appalled when she fired off a volley and captured the Dutch ship. Now, we can't ignore the possibility that he was less than shocked. Parker and his crew, possibly, even probably, took the flyboat instead of John Ward. This would have been a proof of good faith, sort of an initiation. Obviously, he wouldn't have told that to the Admiralty, but it could be the case. But even if he was innocent up until this very moment, he and his men were transferred to the Dutch flyboat. He was now, on some level, complicit in this piracy. He did tell his judges at the Admiralty that he secretly planned to steal the flyboat and escape the arch-pirate John Ward, but that's not what he did. He took the flyboat and manned it and commanded it. Now, Ward gave the Dutch crew of the flyboat the bark. There were no guns on board anymore, but he gave them enough food and water to make it safely home. Then, the two pirates continued on. A few days later, they encountered another vessel, a settee. This was a Turkish ship design. They were Latin-rigged, and, well, more accurately, they were settee-rigged. They had a triangular sail, similar to a modern-day sloop, but with the front point cut off. They were commonly used as coastal transports in the Ottoman Empire, and almost always carried slaves, Christian galley slaves, usually. Now, the presence of the settee here in the Western Mediterranean suggests, since it's not closer to Turkey or Egypt or Greece where they usually would have been, it suggests that they may not have been carrying slaves. Maybe the settee was empty, or maybe it carried some other cargo. We don't know what the haul was when Ward took her. But it's possible that this ship was carrying slaves. European, Catholic galley slaves. Now, there are a number of contemporary fire-and-brimstone writers that seek to condemn John Ward over this event. They declare that he captured the slaves contrary to his race and religion and God himself, not to mention human decency, but there's no evidence of that. Ward certainly didn't brag about it, and Parker never mentioned it. So it may have happened, and it may not have. We don't know. And... The man who was going to receive these slaves in a few weeks' time, if they existed, well, he would have kept quiet about it, too. See, Ward and Parker were on their way to Tunis, and Tunis, you'll remember, was led by a Janissary commander named Uthman Day. Uthman Day was at the head of what was sort of a quiet revolt against the Ottoman Empire. Tunis was still part of Ottoman territory on paper, but... By any real measurement, they were independent. So, when Ward arrived in Tunis with his French prize and the Dutch flyboat and the settee, well, he may have had a few dozen European slaves in tow. If he did, he would have very likely presented them to Uthman Day as a gift. Adrian Tenniswood describes the arrival of Ward and his pirates in Tunis in early 1605, quote, Strangers who came ashore at Lago Leto were to make themselves known to Uthman Day's customs officials who were gathered at the quay to appraise the new arrivals. What did they make of John Ward and his motley crew of disaffected naval men and Cornish smugglers? Heavily bearded with long, lank hair beneath their knitted Monmouth caps, wearing short canvas breeches and a bizarre assortment of brightly colored velvet jackets and leather jerkins, stolen doublets and clanking body armor, the pirates must have attracted stares as they moved through the sunlit streets and dark little alleys. End quote. Now, if Ward did present these customs officials with a rich gift of slaves for Uthman Day, it would explain the warm welcome he received in Tunis. See, he would have been an oddity, the sort of oddity that, well, sticks out, and people would have questioned him and perhaps imprisoned he and his men. But he was not imprisoned. He was welcomed in with open arms, and the best explanation for that 
is a healthy gift when you arrive. Now, we don't know exactly what John Ward or Richard Parker got up to in their first few weeks, even the first few months, that they were in Tunis, but we can surmise a few things. He may have sold his French prize. It was a large ship, but it wasn't fast, and we don't hear about that ship ever again. He renamed the Dutch flyboat The Gift, and... If he did give Uthmande a gift of slaves, he may have chosen that name as a constant reminder of his generosity and his ability to earn. Every time that the day heard of John Ward and the gift, he would remember the gift. He outfitted the gift with thirty guns and all of the powder and shot and tackle and victuals he could carry. And then he sought out a crew. There would have been a dozen Janissaries on board. That was the law there in Tunis. Any ship that sailed out of Tunis in service of Uthman Day had to have Janissaries on board. Now, they outranked the Rais, as they did for most Barbary Corsairs, but Ward may have had some special privileges there. Mostly the Janissaries were there to prevent betrayal and to keep an eye on any investment that the day made. Then Ward had the thirty sailors from Lion's Whelp, as well as the Cornish smugglers he picked up after he took that first Catholic ship. But that still only amounted to fifty or sixty pirates, and that wasn't enough. He wanted a proper crew on the gift. Parker had command of a different vessel, a pinnace, which may have been the settee that they had rigged up differently, or it may have been a new vessel entirely. Personally, I think it was the settee, but his dozen men weren't enough to crew that vessel, and fifty or sixty weren't enough for the gift. So Ward had to recruit. According to the contemporary pamphlet, News from the Sea of Two Notorious Pirates, quote, Ward, having gotten much money at sea and greatly enriched himself with unlawful purchase from his settee, promises a sum of money and so procures a peace and the enlargement of his followers, end quote. When they say the unlawful purchase by his settee, he means slaves. Now, Europe had not yet heard of John Ward, arch-pirate and traitor against God and man, but he was building a name for himself there in Tunis. He probably earned a name for himself as soon as he arrived, sailing in with three ships and valuable cargo tended to do that. He was new. He was curiosity to the locals, and he was successful. So he gathered men from nearly every nation that touched the Mediterranean. He gathered Venetian and Genoese and Nepalese pirates, all of them turned corsair. Most had been Catholic galley slaves at one point that had converted to Islam and joined a crew. They were some of the most capable and least trusted pirates in the Barbary states, so John Ward would have seen their value. These were called, by the Spanish, renegados. There were French Huguenots there as well. Some of those French pirates that came down to Barbary to pad their pockets decided to stick around and earn a living there, and some of them joined up with John Ward. And then there were Jews and Greeks and Slavs and Hungarians, the sort of people that one would expect in Barbary, but there were even a couple of Spanish soldiers that joined up, they were men who had abandoned their king, and they joined with the pirates. Not to mention, in addition to the Janissaries, he picked up a few traditionally Islamic people, Turks and Berbers and the like. Now that he had a crew and a well-outfitted ship, in fact, two crews and two well-outfitted ships, it was time for John Ward to get to work. Unfortunately, we don't know much about exactly what he got up to in 1605. There were a number of ships that went missing during those months. Venetian traders, Spanish galleys, Genoese and papal vessels. And that might have been more than was expected by the usual run of Barbary piracy, but nothing so out of the ordinary that it caused any real concern in Europe. Some of the Mediterranean powers may have upped their coast guards, but they didn't think that anything out of the ordinary was happening. What we do know about John Ward's early days there in Tunis involves the day, Uthman Day. We can assume that Ward engaged in piracy and brought a substantial amount of it back to the day. When historians say that piracy was the state industry in Tunis or Algiers, that's true. 
Ships and cargo and wool and silver were certainly part of that, things that we traditionally associate with pirates. But it was the slaves that made piracy in the Mediterranean truly profitable. And the slave trade in these cities was, well, in 1600 it was less active than it had been when Barbarossa and Dragut were running the show. But over the next few years it was going to explode. In large measure, that was thanks to John Ward and the European pirates that facilitated it. But whether he was on board a ship or simply sending his ships out to do his bidding, John Ward worked his way into Uthmande's good graces. That pamphlet mentions that Uthmande, quote, held share with Ward in all his voyages, prizes, and shippings, and was his only supporter in all his designs, end quote. That's not an unusual relationship. That's essentially a privateer relationship. But Uthmande took that a step further. He gave John Ward responsibilities beyond any typical corsair. John Ward was installed on the Council of Corsair Captains. That means that the Day trusted him enough to give him some legislative power. And that's a rare distinction for a Christian. Now, John Ward might not have been much of a Christian. I don't know that he went to church, and I do know that he violated more than a few commandments. But he was a European and not a Jewish European, so that means he had limited rights, the limited rights of a Christian. He could own a ship, but no land. This, well, Uthmande actually helped him overcome this. The day installed Ward at the home of Tunis's treasurer, and when I say his home, I mean that John Ward was given spacious lodgings at the most heavily guarded fortress in the city. It was the treasury, and it was filled with treasure, John Ward wasn't just a guest here, though. He was appointed as sort of a vice-treasurer in Tunis. He was left in charge of overseeing operations when the regular treasurer left. Now, this might just have been because so much of the treasure inside the fortress belonged to John Ward. See, he almost immediately became Tunis's top earner. And the reason for that is simple. It's because he was white. Whenever a Venetian ship or a Spanish ship saw a galley full of moors bearing down on them, they would open fire and run at top speed. They knew that they were pirates up to no good and that they were there to make them slaves. But when they saw a Dutch ship, a flyboat, with a bunch of northern Europeans aboard, they would stop to say hello, at least early in Ward's career. So, Ward was able to take many ships he was quickly becoming one of the more powerful men in Tunis. Not only did he have the respect of his crew, and of many of the other Corsair captains, and the power of the treasurer, he had the day's ear. Uthman Day trusted him. Now, next time we're going to talk about the voyage that brought John Ward to the attention of all of Europe, the voyage that made him the most infamous man in the world, the voyage that made him an arch-pirate. It was the same voyage that convinced hundreds of Europeans to sail south and join him there on the Barbary coast. But before we go today, I do want to make one last note about the relationship between Uthmande and John Ward. This was an important relationship. It proved that the leaders of the Barbary cities could trust these European pirates. One of the wards given to nickname was Birdie. I was curious about that nickname, so I looked into it. It was based on a nickname that Uthmande gave to him. See, John Ward was born John. The name on his letter of mark signed by Queen Elizabeth was John. The name on the naval register of the lion's whelp was John, but those were official documents. Day to day, he went by the name Jack Ward. Now, according to legend, Jack Ward had a tattoo. It was a common tattoo for English mariners. On the wrist, a small swallow. The swallow was well known in England for traveling great distances, though African swallows are non-migratory. But a single swallow tattoo on one of the wrists was a mark in the Royal Navy that you had traveled 5,000 nautical miles by ship. And... The second was added when you traveled another 5,000 nautical miles. 
Now, these tattoos would become much more popular later on. They weren't really well known quite yet. They weren't a thing in England, but they were among the native peoples in the West and East Indies. So it's unlikely that in reality, John Ward had one of these tattoos, at least so far in our story, but it's not impossible. He may have traveled to the East Indies at some point, or he may have been on board a ship with someone who had. But legend tells us of this tattoo, the swallow tattoo on his wrist. But the day Uthmande saw this and he was delighted by it. It was a beautiful piece of artistry on the skin. It was rare and exotic, not the sort of thing seen in Tunis. Now the day wasn't familiar with the swallow, he'd never seen one before, but he was very familiar with another bird that was common in North Africa, the sparrow. So he gave the pirate a nickname. In Turkish, it meant sparrow, and in that pigeon language, that means that all of the crew of the gift under him called John Ward their commander, Captain Jack Sparrow. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I'd like to thank everyone as well who has helped to support the show. Everybody who has given us a shout-out on social media, everybody who has recommended us to your friends or family, everybody who has given us a rating or review at iTunes or wherever it is you listen to the show, and everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon. A special shout-out this week to our newest patrons, Matthew Goodwin, Patrick84, Steve Googs, Jennifer, Samantha, and Carol. And we recently hit a milestone. The Patreon has been open for just over two years, and it's made this show possible. So a special shout-out to everyone that has been with us since the beginning. People like Barton, Bill, Brad, Garrett, Grindelish Dawn Treader, and of course the history of Westeros. And without all of you, we couldn't do this, so thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you certainly need to do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, which has recently undergone a revamp, and you should definitely go and check it out. Or you can get in touch with us on Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.